The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. This is Squawk Box. This morning, we're live from Brussels and London. In your headlines this hour, the New York Times says President Trump approved a strike on Iran, but then backed down. Neither the White House nor the Pentagon are commenting at this time, while the U.S. aviation regulator has banned operators from flying over Iranian-controlled airspace. Oil prices surge on rising U.S.-Iran tensions while the S&P 500 closes at a fresh record high and gold breaks 1,400 on dovish language from central banks around the world. EU leaders failed to agree on candidates for the big jobs here in Brussels while Europe's top diplomat Federica Mogherini tells me she'll facilitate talks between Washington and Tehran. It is not in the interest of anybody in the region and in the world to see a military escalation there. We'll Europe. try to do what we can to defuse tensions, open channels of communication and uh, make sure that uh, an escalation is avoided. Hunt are confirmed as the final two candidates in the race to succeed the Prime Minister, Theresa May. Another strong trading session on Wall Street. Look at the extent of the percentage gains. Close to 1% on the Dow and S&P. A bit less on the Nasdaq, 8 tenths of a percent. As investors again picked up on the Fed's language, uh, a Fed that is ready to respond to any weakening in conditions. Some of the mood has still been tempered by concerns around whether the US and China can reach a resolution. But when it was uh, money being put back to work, you can see investors going back into key sectors energy underpinning this market yesterday on heightened geopolitical tensions. The uh, Iranians shooting down a US drone that put a bid back in the markets for energy, which led all sectors on the street uh, yesterday. Consumer staples clocking up a fresh record. And what did this mean across from the major indices? Well, the Dow closed at its highest level since October 2018, 26,753. But when it came to the S&P 500, we saw a fresh record level. And you can see we're just six points shy of the 3,000 handle. The question is whether it can continue from here. Yields, uh, the Humphrey yield was on, as you can see, uh, many global yields falling, the US no exception. The five, the sevens, the, the tens, the thirties, all trading around their lowest levels since 2016. We breached the 2% handle as well on the US 10-year yield yesterday. We've reclaimed that mark today, uh, but still very low levels is what we've got right across the board. Investors continue to weigh up central bank action and whether they stand ready to move possibly as early as next month. Month. When I get into that WTI trade and uh, Brent, you can see this morning we've just given back a fraction, given back a little bit of territory after what was a very strong session. WTI, WTI yesterday clocked up its best day of 2019, so at its highest level since uh, highest level for the month. We've got 56.85 on the boards for WTI, Brent 64.37. And just a shout out for gold, uh, for all those gold bugs. We got to 1,400 uh, on the trade, 1.2% higher. Investors looking at the declining yield that you're seeing on many of the sovereign bonds and saying, well, that uh, does put a bid back in for what is a non-yielding play on markets and a safe haven trade. Let's get to dollar. It's been on the defensive. It's been a casualty uh, in the last couple of sessions on the back of a, a very dovish Fed. 
what we've had uh, on the Chinese currency trade has been 6.86 dollars trying to pick up a little bit of territory to that trade it is weakening to the Japanese yen this morning down two tenths of a percent sterling and euro also supported to the dollar this morning we've got 127 on the boards for sterling the language yesterday interesting for the Bank of England still inclined to be hiking rates but many see downside potential to its growth forecasts and and what plays out on the global front not to mention whether there's a hard Brexit as we watch who will take charge of the UK we've got uh, still some potential risk to the downside 127.02 is how sterling is perched 112.95 just drifted off the 113 handle on Europe but still strengthening to the dollar Asian markets, uh, more signs of protests in Hong Kong today. That market trades down by about a quarter of a percent. China, investors on this market are still hoping for that deal, that G20 will yield something between the two leaders as trade tensions continue. And don't forget, you saw a number of the big manufacturers in the States that could face fresh tariffs, sending a letter and writing to Trump and letting him know that he wants those, they want those tariffs removed from the president. Uh, the Japanese market and South Korea both on the back foot today. The opening calls, let's just get into the European trade. We're looking weak as we seek to close out the trading week, uh, chasing modest declines at the start of the European session. Karen, thank you very much indeed. Let's um, focus on this Iran story. President Trump apparently approved military strikes against Iran, but then backed down. That according to the New York Times, the report which cites multiple senior officials involved in or briefed on the deliberations say the president approved strikes on a handful of targets like radar and missile batteries in retaliation for Iran shooting down a US drone. The reason for calling off the strike is unclear. White House and Pentagon officials have declined to comment for the report. However, the New York Times states no government officials asked the paper to withhold the article. NBC News is working to confirm the report. Meanwhile, U.S. flight operators have been banned from flying over some Iranian-controlled airspace by the Federal Aviation Administration. The FAA cited, quote, heightened military activities and increased political tensions in the region. The agency said the risk to civil aviation was illustrated by the shooting down of a U.S. drone while it was operating in the vicinity of civil air routes around the Gulf of Oman. President Trump backed his administration's claims that the drone was in international waters and claimed the incident could have been a mistake. I would imagine it was a general or somebody that made a mistake in shooting that drone down. And fortunately, that drone was unarmed. It was not, there was no man in it. And there was no, it was just... It was over international waters, clearly over international waters, but we didn't have a man or woman in the drone. We had nobody in the drone. It would have made a big difference, let me tell you. would have made a big, big difference. But uh, I have a feeling, I may be wrong, and I may be right, but I'm right a lot. I have a feeling that it was a mistake made by somebody that shouldn't have been doing what they did. I think they made a mistake. And I'm not just talking to the country made a mistake. I think that somebody under the command of that country made a big mistake. Uh, well, let's get out to Hadley. Lots of uh, different aspects to this, Hadley. But let's let's start off with the uh, New York Times article here. Um, the psychology is interesting. Do we imagine this is a calculated leak by members of the administration to send a message to Iran about the president's intent or anger with regard to this drone? 
It's an excellent question, Jeff. I mean, at the end of the day, you know as well as I do that the president's relationship uh, with the media and certainly with the New York Times, the Washington Post and others is at the best of times rather difficult. So it's an excellent question and certainly something uh, that will feed the flames of speculation, no doubt. But just to give you a bit of a sense of what we're seeing in terms of the last 24 hours here in the GCC, you mentioned, of course, the FAA ruling that U.S. flights should be stopped over that sensitive air corridor uh, over the Strait of Hormuz. If you can get that map up, just to give you an idea when we talk about those shipping lanes, we are so also are also talking, of course, about uh, a major transit hub in Dubai International Airport. It's one of the busiest, as you know, in the world. Now, there's no word yet on whether the regional airlines like Emirates or Etihad might follow suit here, but certainly it's something to continue to watch, I'd say. And frankly, no statements as yet on any of this, really, from these Gulf Arab states. Now, speaking from the U.S. Air Force Central Command in Qatar, we heard the Pentagon giving their first briefing in as much as a year. Um, big surprise briefing there uh, as well. And it was interesting, I thought, to get a sense of just exactly how far they were willing to go in what they had to say. Listen in. This attack is an attempt to disrupt our ability to monitor the area following recent threats to international shipping, and the free flow of commerce. Iranian reports that this aircraft was shot down over Iran are categorically false. The aircraft was over the Strait of Hormuz and fell into international waters. At the time of the intercept, the RQ-4 was operating at high altitude, approximately 34 kilometers from the nearest point of land on the Iranian coast. This dangerous and escalatory attack was irresponsible and occurred in the vicinity of established air corridors between Dubai, UAE, and Muscat, Oman, possibly endangering innocent civilians. The Pentagon there just saying, you know, again and again, it's irresponsible. It was an unprovoked attack, really laying out there uh, the dangers, not just to shipping, but also that air corridor, as I mentioned. I think that's really significant that they would, in a just two minute or so uh, statement that was being read down the line to Pentagon reporters sitting in the briefing room, apparently, from the U.S. air base in Qatar, making it pretty clear of the dangers uh, surrounding uh, this kind of attack for not just tankers, but for airplanes as well. I thought that was very significant for an administration, of course, that ties so much uh, to not just trade, but also uh, to what it means for the bottom line. So I thought that was interesting that they wanted to be sure and put that out there. And all of this, as you know, coming after that spate of attacks we've seen over the last several months, not just on the tankers, of course, uh, but also even in Iraq. We've seen that uh, situation really spiraling over the last 24 to 48 hours with the Katusha rocket attacks, not just on U.S. Inst installations there, but also in the south in Basra, on international oil companies. So a lot of things to watch and continue to monitor, and we'll bring that to you guys as they happen. Thanks so much. Hadley, terrific coverage. Thank you very much for talking us through the latest there. Elsewhere, European leaders have failed to reach consensus on who will take Brussels' top jobs despite negotiating into the early hours. Despite the infighting, the summit was also overshadowed by an escalation U.S.-Iran tensions. Let's get out to Willem for more. Willem, this is classic uh, European discussions where something else seems to have stolen the narrative. We've seen this over the years with Brexit, with Greece. Now it's at the U.S.-Iran tensions and there's no consensus despite a very late, late meeting. What does this tell us about what comes next and who the likely candidate could be? Well, I mean, there's obviously a huge range of possibilities still on in terms of the candidates ahead of this meeting, I should say. It was me trying to get Mogherini, Federica Mogherini, the EU, uh, EU's high representative on foreign affairs to talk about Iran that prompted her comments. A lot of the other leaders were much more focused, in fact, 
on what was going on here in Brussels and what it meant for the future of the Commission. But Mogherini had been in Washington on Tuesday where she'd met with her counterpart, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. And when I asked her about what she was concerned about, what Europe could do when it comes to diffusing tensions, here's how she responded based on those conversations she had with Pompeo. We agreed on the fact that uh, it is not in the interest of anybody in the region and in the world to see a military escalation there. Uh, and so the European Union will do all it can with our partners in the region and beyond, with the United States, to coordinate positions. And first and foremost for us, uh, it's important to keep Iran compliant, fully compliant with uh, its commitments under the uh, JCPOA. Now, Mogherini, of course, belongs to the current European Commission. Its term ends formally at the moment, at least, on October the 31st. And she holds one of the top five jobs here in Europe that, in theory, needs to find a new replacement for her. And that's why these leaders were here yesterday, guys. They all met, they talked, they talked some more. And then early this morning, just a few hours ago, they left, having not come up with any consensus candidate what has happened, and it's a complex process involving both the European Council, that's the heads of state from the 28 European nations, and also the European Parliament just down the road, is that the parliamentary parties, and there were once upon a time just two major groupings, now there's far more based on the May 26th elections and the fragmentation we've seen in European politics, those various groupings put forward their preferred candidates for the Council to then consider, in theory, 21 out of the 28 heads of state needs to agree on an individual, to run the commission and to run some of the other major posts here, including Mogherini's, they would then send those candidates back to the parliament for the new session July 2nd, hoping to get them endorsed. There was a lot of uncertainty as to whether any of the candidates would get that consensus inside the European Council last night. Clearly none of them did. And so what people like Emmanuel Macron, the French president, are saying is we should open this up beyond just the candidates that the parliamentary groupings have proposed and look at some of the other qualified individuals across Europe who might be good for this job to run the largest trading bloc in the world in terms of its executive branch, but also people who will run the European Council, chair these kinds of meetings in the future, the head of the ECB and other big posts facing us, and of course, Mogherini as well. The parliament separately, and this is the final point I make, will elect its own president, the outgoing president, Antonio Tajani, saying he was not involved in the horse trading last time around, and he doesn't expect the next parliamentary president to be part of these kinds of discussions known as Posten poker in German, jobs poker. Back to you guys. Um, Philip, there, there was this process called um, Spitzenkandidat, if I understand it, which was meant to mean that it, this was a slam dunk, that the key posts were filled by representatives of the major blocks. What I'm hearing here sounds to be somewhat different and rather more nuanced. Does this mean that um, the French are getting their way when it comes to muddying the process? So the Spitzenkandidat process, I, I've tried to outline, it's, it's complicated, but essentially you're right. You know, individual parliamentary blocks, groupings of parties from across Europe put forward their preferred candidates ahead of the election. And the expectation is that the largest single party in the parliament is then able to say to the European Council, this is the man or woman that we like most. This is who we would like you to agree on. And what's happened last night clearly is that the European People's Party, which won the most number of seats, but is nowhere near a majority in the European Parliament, they put forward Manfred Weber, a German MEP. He belongs to the Bavarian branch of Angela Merkel's uh, party in Germany. He did not seem to have enough supporters in the European Council. Emmanuel Macron has 
implicitly but not explicitly criticized him for a lack of executive experience. There are many others who seem to share those concerns. And so what it seems like is that the French and some of the other nations here have said, you know what, we don't think that this man is qualified for the job. And therefore, we don't think it's fair to take some of the other spits and candidates put forward by the European parties, even if we might like them. So what we'd like to do is start all over again and look at a fresh set of names. And they could start doing that between now and next Sunday when they hope to be back here for yet more discussions. Willem, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you very much for explaining that for us. They'll be coming up on the show. And then there were two, Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt, lock horns to become the next British Prime Minister. Details next. And if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune into our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. And for our listeners out there, stick around for some more. Welcome back, everybody. Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt will go head-to-head to, head to become the next British Prime Minister. Hunt edged out rival Michael Gove in the final ballot, having fallen behind in the previous round. Johnson is the overwhelming favourite to succeed Theresa May. The former London mayor is committed to leaving the EU with or without a deal on October the 31st. Meanwhile, Chancellor Philip Hammond again spoke out against the no-deal Brexit in his Mansion House speech. He warned the scenario would permanently harm the UK economy. A damaging no-deal Brexit would cause short-term disruption to our economy, soaking up all the fiscal headroom we've built and more. And while fiscal and monetary policy interventions could help to smooth our path to a post-no-deal Brexit economy, both could only be temporary and neither could prevent the economy being permanently smaller than if we leave with a deal. The UK Chancellor Philip Hammond. Uh, well, he's described himself as the underdog, uh, and many think that he lacks charisma. Uh, but Steve, Mr Hunt is still in the running at this stage. I thought you were talking about me for a moment there, Jeff, the underdog lacking charisma, but we'll go with Mr Hunt, yeah. Look, I thought that was very generous of our production team to go with um, the Chancellor of the Exchequer's speech from the Mansion House last night, because actually the big news from the Mansion House was quite apart from those warnings uh, from Mr Hammond, was the fact that Mark Field, who is a minister in the Foreign Office, incidentally, who comes under uh, Jeremy Hunt, actually grappled with a Greenpeace protester, and that is all over the, uh, the headlines of certainly the tablet and elsewhere this morning and whether he's going to face some form of inquiry into that, whether the City of London Police will, are going to get involved in this one as well. Uh, he was accused, alleged to have manhandled uh, the Greenpeace protester who tried to uh, disrupt uh, the Mansion House speeches last night as well. So straight away, problems for Jeremy Hunt on day one. The other thing I thought was our reading was very interesting about Mr Hunt edging out Michael Gove because we talked a lot about this psychodrama that could happen uh, if indeed Mr Gove were to be in the final two and go up against his old nemesis Boris Johnson. Of course, those two have a lot of form from 2016 when Mr Gove at the last moment switched his allegiance to himself uh, rather than Boris Johnson uh, in the bid to become uh, the leader of the Conservative Party that time round as well. So the fact that uh, there are accusations of vote lending from Mr Johnson's supporters, i.e. edging out Mr Gove on purpose to, to mean that Mr Johnson faces um, Jeremy Hunt, who was a Remainer in 2016, 
2016 in the final two. Uh, again, lots of accusations. So typical Tory party, I'm afraid, in many ways, skullduggery and concerns about all kinds of issues that aren't about the main issues, which is, i.e., who is going to be the next Conservative Party leader, who is going to be the next Prime Minister. Quick word on the process. It starts tomorrow in Birmingham. It ends on the 17th of July in London. 16 hustings, at which basically means that the candidates get to go up in front of various Conservative Party uh, membership groups. There's 160,000 uh, Conservative Party members. And thereafter, uh, with the ballots in place from the 6th to the 8th of July, these members will then vote uh, for their favourite to become the leader of the Conservative Party. We'll understand that those results will be available from the 22nd of July, just in time for the parliamentary recess, incidentally, so for the MPs to go off on holiday as well. But then, of course, the, the tough work begins for the new Prime Minister to try and get, A, the Conservative Party on board, and B, cobble together some form of deal uh, which will work for the Europeans. Incidentally, people are saying, don't expect too much out of the new Prime Minister, even when we get one, about what his plan is, uh, because um, we've got the Conservative Party conference at the end of September, and it's very unlikely they're going to reveal full details. Indeed, from what we've been hearing from Willem, that Europe will be ready to receive full details uh, of what the plan is going forward to try and get out of this quagmire that is Brexit. Steve, I want to get into the market implications and the one where we have seen the most trading around has really been sterling, less so other assets. We've been right up to almost 133 this year and right down to even 125 this week on the chance of a hard Brexit. Some of that now masked over by the, the prospect that the Bank of England can still be hiking at some point in the, in the near future. What's the potential for, for big swings now? Because uh, if it is Boris Johnson, surely the, the prospect becomes live that there could be a hard Brexit come the end of October if there's no deal. Yeah. Yeah, you make some very good points there, Karen. Well, for a start, on what planet could Mark Carney be raising rates when the rest of the world is looking more dovish? I, I don't know, especially when the UK inflation data, uh, UK retail sales data and UK confidence data are all pointing in one direction at the moment, albeit just only three uh, pieces of data sampling. So the rate hike issue aside, uh, October 31st comes into radar. Now, the difference between the two candidates is that Jeremy Hunt said if we're close to a deal, they he would not force a hard Brexit on the 31st of October. Uh, and the insinuation from the other side is from the Brexiteer, Mr Johnson, is that he would take us out with or without a deal on the 31st of October. But actually, is that the case? And I think people are beginning to look at his language when he's gone from we must come out on October the 31st to more recent language where he said, and I quote Mr Johnson, it is eminently feasible that we will go out with or without a deal on October 31st as well. So very interesting to see how that language may well change uh, in these huge number of hustings. I should say there's a, an ITV TV debate coming up quite soon as well. So there'll be lots of uh, opportunities uh, for people to take Mr Johnson on about that hard Brexit scenario, which, as you say, Karen, has taken... Sterling at one point down to a 125 handle. And Steve, um, what do you think the odds are for a general election at this stage? What else are you hearing about that? Well, I mean, I think that that's a very important point as well. But but first of all, the odds on who's going to win. I mean, look, we can just say that the William Hill, for one, bookmaker, seven to one, that it's going to be Boris Johnson who will be the next prime minister. Jeremy Hunt is very much the rank outsider here as well. Uh, people have talked a lot about him relying on his competence to get deals done. Uh, 
and the fact that he has had a very good track record of getting records done, despite the fact that, of course, uh, whilst he was health secretary, Jeremy Hunt had a huge, huge rancorous and very bitter row with the junior doctors as well. And a lot of people in the NHS uh, say that they're scarred by that and would never vote Conservative again. That said, he did secure a lot of money for the NHS at a time, of course, uh, of austerity and belt tightening in the Conservative Party as well. But moving on to your question, Jeff, as well, uh, it depends on getting a mandate as well. Uh, you and I and Karen have all seen some of these polls and there have been big question marks about the Comres poll that came out of the Telegraph quite recently talking about the Tories under Boris Johnson could win in a general election uh, and get a 140 seat majority. That is a real outlier of a poll, it's got to be said, because in many other polls, the Conservatives are neck and neck. But again, the Conservatives are asking themselves lots of questions. One, who should be their next leader? Two, who is uh, going to get the, the best scenario for the country on Brexit? And three, uh, which one would win a general election? And for many MPs and Conservative Party members, is, is it the Brexit scenario or winning an election, which is the most important? That is a, a very interesting question because they don't necessarily have the same result. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.